Welcome to Sunday School. We're moving along in 2 Samuel. We're at chapter 19 this morning. Remember last week we uh, finished up the battle between David and his son Absalom. Absalom, his forces were defeated. Absalom was killed by Joab and his bloodthirsty men. And uh, we finished the chapter with Absalom, or Joab sending news of Absalom's death and David receiving it. And if you remember, uh, David did not take the news well. Uh, he was, uh, Joab had sent uh, uh, two men to give news to David about his son dying. When David heard the news, he began to mourn for his son. And he went up into a tower and was weeping and crying out for his son. And that's where we left the story of David mourning for the death of his son. And so that's where we're at in chapter 19. And we're going to continue there. David is still uh, east of the Jordan at this point. He hasn't gone back to Jerusalem. He hasn't taken up his kingship again yet. Um, This chapter I entitled David Returns to Jerusalem. It kind of bridges the gap from uh, him finishing up this battle and being still in exile from Jerusalem and heading back. Uh, The end of the chapter is kind of towards the end of him going back to Jerusalem and dealing with some of the affairs and and dealing with different people that he encountered during his exile or should have encountered during his exile and settling affairs with them. So it, it kind of wraps up some of the things that happened while he was exiled and uh, some of the, and we'll cover some of those things this morning. So that's where we're at. Um, and then uh, when we get to uh, next week, we're going to see that uh, some more problems arise as a result of uh, things that happened in this chapter this morning that David still has to deal with. Uh, things are still are not settled yet because of this whole uh, rebellion of his son and how things are handled here. So... Um, Things still aren't at peace for David for a while yet. But let's deal with chapter 19 this morning, and then we'll deal with chapter 20 next week. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into the word here. Uh, Josiah, would you pray for us this morning? I originally wasn't going to eat any donuts, and I ate some, and now it's made me really thirsty, so I'm going to take a drink of water. So let's uh, dig into the chapter here, 2 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. Jana, your hand went up right away, almost like you were expecting me to ask you to read or something. So go ahead. Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, my son, my son. 
So David continues to mourn for Absalom. Now David here is acting probably as a father would act. Now Absalom was, of course, trying to kill him all along because David was the king and he was trying to be the king and you can't have two kings. But David is thinking as a father here, and even though his son was rebelling against him and trying to kill him, he still is a father, and it's his son. And he's mourning for his son. No father, I think, wants to see his son die. Um, even uh, I've not had this, thankfully, as a father, but I've talked to fathers who've had rebellious sons, and they, as much as it, it frustrates them to have a son that rebels, they still grieve for them, they still care for them, they still pray for them, and they still care very much for their sons, and I think this is still a very hard thing for David, so he's acting as a father here, he's mourning for his son, and this is heartbreaking for him, and he's having trouble dealing with it. And the first thing we see in this chapter is Joab, and remember Joab is David's nephew, um, he's, he gets this news that David is weeping and mourning for Absalom, this is going to come back in a second, because this is important that Joab knows this. And not only does Joab hear about this, but David's people, David's warriors, David's army hears about this, that David is mourning for his son Absalom. So now instead of the people celebrating a great victory because David's won, he's won back the kingdom, he's beat Absalom, now they're coming back to the city instead of in great victory, they're coming back as people who have lost the battle because their king is not celebrating, he's mourning. And... So they're returning as people who are ashamed because of what David's attitude is towards this victory. David's not celebrating that, yay, we've won. Yay, God's given me the victory. David's mourning because his son is dead. And the people, instead of coming joyously in because their king is not celebrating, they're coming in as people who have lost the battle. And you see that David's posture of mourning, he's covered his face, and he's crying out. And when last we saw him, he climbed up into the tower, and he's mourning. But apparently he's just crying out loudly so people can hear this. And they hear him crying out for his son. And so this is really tempering the celebration victory here. Nobody's celebrating because their king is not happy. He's mourning instead. And this is, this is becoming a problem now because the people feel like we've, we've done a good thing here. We've defended our king. We fought for our king We've done what should be done for him, and instead of you know having a victory celebration, instead of being acknowledged that something good has happened, our king's upset about this, and they're feeling really bad about winning. <laughs> you know, it's it's like I don't know, you know, you go and win the Super Bowl. And your coach comes out and says, well, you know, this is my former coach, and I feel bad that we beat him. I mean, I, I think we should have lost the game. If it, if this is really kind of a bad thing for our team. And your team's going, like, we just won the Super Bowl. What are you talking about? We should be celebrating. No, the other team really should have won. It's, this is really kind of a bad victory for us. We, we really took advantage of a beat of This was really poor. We shouldn't have won this game. And you'd be like, what is he talking about? I mean, this is... They just, this is just the whole bad situation here. And we're going to see in a second, Joab is just kind of fed up with this, and he, he's going to let David know. So let's look at Joab's response here, verses 5 through 7. Who would like to read? Go ahead, Marie.
So Joab admonishes David. And Joab, Joab's had enough. He goes to the king's house. And, you know, he comes in and says, uh, David, I, I really need to have a word with you. And this is going to be really hard to say, but I, I'm hoping you listen to me and take this in the right spirit. No. He comes in and says, Today you've disgraced all your servants. He's very bold with the king, right? He's had enough of it. And, and sometimes I think you just you got to come out and say it. And Joab's, Joab's like, okay, look here, you disgraced all your servants. These people have gone out here. They've saved your life. You know, you, you were a dead dog. You're going to be hunted down by this guy and killed. And your people have stepped up and they saved your life. If that's not enough, if, if, if you don't care about that, they saved the life of your kids. And they saved the life of your wives and your concubines. And... Um, what have you done and said? You, you've showed hate for these people that have saved you and showed love towards your enemies. You know, you, you've chosen your enemies over your own family. And you're not, you've showed near regard for princes or servants here. And I'm perceiving that if Absalom had lived and we've all died, you'd be more happy about that. And that's wrong because we're the ones who have stood by your sides. We've gone in exile with you. We've not left you. We've supported you through this whole thing. And, and this is not right, David. And let me tell you, you need to go out there and you need to speak to your people right now because right now they're ready to leave you. And if you don't go out there right now, by the next day they're all going to be gone and you're going to be all alone and it's going to be worse for you now than it's ever been in your whole life. And I've seen your whole life. I've seen you running from Saul. I've seen you being in exile, I've seen you having to go to the Philistines. I've been through you in this time when you've been fleeing from Absalom, and it's going to be much worse than that because, you know what, this time you're going to be all alone. There's going to be nobody left with you. And so Joab tells it like it is. And I, I think that's, that's um, I, I was looking at some of the commentaries, and MacArthur makes a big deal like, you know, Joab's in charge of the army, and so David may have been scared here that, you know, Joab has all this power and maybe he should listen to Joab. I don't think that's it. I think Joab here is, is as bloodthirsty and as unrighteous as sometimes Joab is. I think Joab's being a true friend to David and saying, David, get your head right here. You're not acting the way you're supposed to be. I'm coming to you as a friend. I'm telling you what you need to hear. And there are times in our lives where, we need to just come to people and say, this is what you need to hear. And you're not going to like hearing it, maybe. It's not going to be what you want to hear. You want to hear, it's okay, it's okay. You know, I know you feel bad about your son. Just go ahead and cry it out. No, no, at this point, you need to get out there and you need to be the king. That's your job right now. You need to go out there. You need to talk to your troops. You need to tell them that they did a good job, that they were right in supporting you, that... 
you're proud of them, you're proud of the job they did, that, that they just were, were doing the best job they could and, and we won the day and it's a great victory for us, you need to tell them that because they need to hear that. And as the king, you need to show them that you appreciate their support, you appreciate them fighting for you, and that you're very thankful for that. That's your job as a king. You need to be a king now. You need to stop being a grieving dad, and you need to go out and do your job as a king. And that's what Joab is telling him right now, and he needs to hear that. And, and Joab's not, not mincing words here. He's just saying, you're disgracing your people right now. Get out there and do it. That's Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't say that in there, but yeah, it's, it's kind of that, that kind of attitude. You know, he, he's he's just he's he's tired of the the crying and the the self pity here and the 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 the, the self remorse and saying, David, your job right now is to be a king. God's put you in this position. You're you're God's king over this nation. You go and be a king now. It's time. I know that that you're hurting. I know that you've suffered. I know that your son is dead, but. Your job right now is to be the king, and you need to go out there and be the king. And you need to put aside your, your self-hurt, your self-pain, and you need to do what God needs you to do. I think Joab understands it's hard. I don't, I don't think he has any, any uh, doubts about that. I don't think he's telling David, you know, you know, just get over it, David. I don't think he's telling David that, but he's saying that you have something you need to do right now. You need to go out and do it. Yeah, David, you're hurting, but that's too bad. You need to do what God needs you to do right now, and that means you need to go out and be a king right now. That's your job. That's what God's appointed you to do. Go be a king. And David listens. Let's read verses 8 through 10. Lemuel, go ahead. <laughs> then the king arose and sat in the gate, and they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate, so all the told king or king, Israel had fled to his tent, and all the people were in a dispute about all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled from the land. So now the people here desired to bring the king back. Now this took me a while to figure it out. I mean, I, it's kind of, I don't know what, if my brain was just not working correctly here or whatever, but the people here, this seems to be the ten tribes of Israel that this is talking about in this section here. Um, and there seems to be an argument between David's people and other Israelites. Uh, but the Israelites seem to be arguing here, and they, they seem to look, be looking at the king and saying that the king's sitting in the gate here. And they point out this victorious king that he's sitting in the gate, and this is at uh, Manhenem. That's where he is over um, here in Gad, way over here. Um, so they point out this victorious king, and the Israelites are fleeing to their tent, but they're, they're now looking at this, and they don't have a king anymore because they anointed Absalom, and that's what they're talking about here. Um, 
So they're talking about David, that, that, that David's now their only king that they, had, they can have because he defeated all the enemies before that. He defeated the Philistines. And now Absalom's dead, the one that they anointed over them. And so they're arguing, why, why are we saying nothing about bringing back David as our king? And, and the reason why I think this is the ten tribes is because you start looking at the way the story goes here, and you're going to see clearly that... Um, the ten tribes that seem to make a, the first argument about bringing David back in the story. And so the ten tribes are starting to say, we need to get David back as king. We don't have a king anymore. Absalom's dead. And looking back, David was, was a good king. <laughs> we appreciate having David as a king. He defeated our enemies. He defeated the Philistines. Absalom didn't work out as king. We want David back as king. We, why, why doesn't somebody go get David and bring him back as a king? We need to do that. We need a king over us. So they're, they're, they're talking about and they're arguing to each other about we need to get David back. And he's over on the other side of Jordan. Let's bring him back. We need to get him back. And so they're having this debate among themselves. So why doesn't somebody go get David? And that's their argument at this point. So they're, they're, they're desiring, some of the people are starting to say, let's get David back and bring him back as king. And we're going to see that they hesitate a little bit, but the, the, their idea is that we need to get David back. Um, now, the one tribe that's not arguing about that seems to be Judah, and we're going to see this in just a second as we read verses 11 through 14. Miriam, go ahead and read those for us. So King David sent to Zarab and Abathar, the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to the house, since the word of all Israel has come to the king to his very house. Are you my brethren? Are you my bone and my flesh? Why then are you blessed to bring me back the king? Then to, and say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do to, so to me, and more also, if you are not the commander of my army before me continually in the place of Job. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king: "Return, you and all your servants." So David solicits the help of the priests. So Judah's not acting. The other ten tribes are talking about, let's bring David back. Judah seems to be hesitant to do that for some reason. And now why is it a big deal if Judah doesn't want to bring David back as king? It's where Jerusalem's at, and it's also David's own tribe that's, that's hesitant. Um, so David sends for the priest, and he says, go talk to the elders of Judah. I, I'm going to get the big guns. I'm going to get the religious leaders to come and talk to the head, heads of the tribe of Judah. And you go and ask them, why has Judah not done this? And he's going to make the big argument, David is from your tribe. You should want this. You should want a guy from your own tribe to be the king. That's you know prestigious for you as a tribe, right? The king is from your tribe. That's good for your tribe. That looks good. That's, that's a benefit to you. Why aren't you doing this? And then he tells him, go and go say to Amasa. Who's Amasa? David's nephew. David's nephew, but who else was he? Where did he show up before? 
Whose who's general was he? Absalom's general. Yeah, he's still, he's still around. Now, why he tells her, you're my relation, he's David's nephew, he's David's sister's son, um, which is one of the reasons why Absalom took him as his general. Um, but he says, I'm going to make you a commander in place of Joab. Now, why would he do that? Joab has been David's commander for many years, has served David faithfully. Why would David fire Joab and make Amasa his commander? So someone else doesn't do it? Okay. Why, why would that be bad if someone else took him as his commander? Because he's competent. Why else? Okay, and, and, and more so even that, you know, the, if he's been the commander for the guy who was acting as king, you know, maybe someone else takes him as his commander and says, hey, look, I got the guy who was leading the armies of Judah. Now I can have the armies of Judah fighting for me and maybe make a, 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 a play at the throne. If David has the commander of the armies of Judah, now he has the armies of Judah under his rule because the commander's working for him. So he has... Now, full authority over the army. So he's looking at this as a military, you know, it's strategic for him to have the military working for him. And he has the commander, the most recent commander of the Judah, Judah's armies, leading his armies now. And so now the, then the Judah are looking at this and going, oh, our, our, our military commander is commanding David's armies. Hey, we want to be behind that. So, so David makes it his commander. Now, how do you think Joab's going to feel about this? Yeah, yeah, Joab's probably not going to be very happy about this in the future. So just we'll keep that in the back of our minds because Joab doesn't like uh, being slighted. It doesn't like being put down. Joab uh, doesn't take this kind of stuff lightly. Anyway, so, so Judah gets all this, this, this message from the priests. They, they see Amasa being promoted to command of the army. And Judah gets behind this. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah, we should be doing this. We're, we're going we're gonna to take David back. We're going to make him king again. We're, we're all for this now. So they, they get behind this idea, and they're finally the last of the tribes, and they say, good, good idea. Let's do this. We're going to move forward, and we're going to take David, and we're going to get him back to Jerusalem and make him king again. So we're going we're, we're to return you and all your servants. We're going back to Jerusalem we're going to put David back in charge. This is a great idea. Let's go. So they start to move David. So verses 15 through 18. Who's next to read? Grace, go ahead. Then the king returned and came to the Jordan. And Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king to inquire the king across the Jordan. And Shemai, the son of Gerah, and Bishamai, who was from Purim, Over the 
So the people cross the Jordan. Yeah, so they're coming, they're coming from Manhattan down to Gilgal over here. So they're crossing down here, heading towards Jerusalem. So they're kind of a pretty straight line. Um, and we see the men of Judah approach the Jordan River, and some Benjaminites come and approach the river. And of the Benjaminites, we see this guy, Shimnei. And remember him, who is this guy? What, where do we see him before? He was basically cursing out David out of the tree. Yeah, yeah as, as David was fleeing from Jerusalem, remember, this was the guy who was cursing him and throwing stones and stuff at him and was accusing him of stealing the throne from Saul, calling him a robber and a murderer. Um, he comes He comes with a thousand men. Also with him is Ziba. Remember Ziba. Who's Ziba? Anybody remember Ziba? Yeah, Ziba was Saul's former servant who was serving Mephibosheth. Um, and when last we met Ziba, Ziba was saying that Mephibosheth uh, wasn't going to come with David because Mephibosheth was going to go to Jerusalem and try to steal the throne while David was gone. That was the story. And we talked about that that probably wasn't the story, but that Ziba was uh, trying to get on David's good side. Um, so Ziba's there with his 15 sons, his 20 servants. They all cross over the river here before David, and then David and his household cross over. Well, uh, Shimei is here, and, you know, interesting that he's here. What's his plan? Is he going to pick up stones again? Is he going to cause problems? What is he going to do? Let's find out what he's going to do here, verses 18 through 23. Who wants to read that? So Shimei receives mercy from David here. So Shimei, instead of throwing rocks and cursing, he falls down before David. And he confesses that he sins, and he asks for a sin not to be held against him, which is an interesting change of heart here. Uh, perhaps he's a little more bold when he thinks that David's not going to be king anymore, and his son is going to kill him. Now that he realizes that David's going to be king, he has a little bit of a change of heart. But for whatever reason, he says the right things. He says, do not let my Lord impute iniquity to me or remember the wrong your servant did on that day. The Lord, the king, left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. So he asked for his sin not to be held against him. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. So he confesses his sin there. Therefore, here I am, the first 
to come today of the house of Joseph to go down to meet my lord, the king. And by the house of Joseph, you're thinking, well, Benjamin's not really the house of Joseph, right? Those of you who are paying attention. Um, sometimes when you talk about the ten tribes and the two tribes, the south tribes are called Judah, the north tribes are called Joseph, because uh, Ephraim is the largest of the ten tribes of the north, and sometimes it gets called Joseph as the door. So that's why he's saying that. That's why he says Joseph. He's not really of the tribe of Joseph. He's of Benjamin. But that's why he says it that way. And so, so he comes before him and asks for David not to hold the sin against him. He admits his sin before David. And Abishai, who's Abishai? Good to remember who these people are. Son of Zariah. Who else is he? Who else is a son of Zariah? Joab. So he's Joab's brother. Um, and he has a lot of the traits of Joab because he really wants to go on a killing spree again, right? He wants this guy dead. And he uses a good argument with, at least he thinks he uses a good argument with David because how does he argue? Yeah, he, 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 he stood up against the Lord's anointed. David likes that argument, you know, the Lord's anointed. So he, thinks, he maybe thinks that's a moving argument with David. Um, David says, nope. Nope, why should, why should first of all, he, 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 he's like, I think he gets tired of dealing with Joab and Abishai over and over again. Like, come on, guys, calm down a little bit here. You guys always want to kill people. But uh, he, he's like, we're done killing today in Israel. It, we've had enough killing. We just had a civil war. We just killed a number of people. The killing needs to stop. We're going to show mercy today. We're going to show God's mercy to people. Uh, I know I, I'm, I'm now the king here. I'm going to dispense God's mercy to people. And he promises not to kill Shimei. Now, um, how long does this work for Shimei? Well, let's look at 1 Kings chapter 2. So I got a couple verses there. One I have out because it was short enough to put in the notes. The other one's a little bit longer. So um, if you want to get your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings, I want to look at this because this is it's kind of important to see. Huh? First Kings. Yeah, it's after Second Samuel. Chapter two. So the first one's there. Somebody wants to read that first part of First Kings, verses eight and nine. Who would like to read? No readers today. Is it because I didn't pass out the candy? Because they're still sitting here? Sorry about that. Okay, go ahead, Nathan. And see you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bethurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahane. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore, do not hold him guiltless, you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So David did promise not to kill him. He didn't promise that his son wouldn't kill him. So um, he tells Solomon to deal with him for his acts, to not hold him guiltless. And he puts the judgment into Solomon's hands. Solomon, you do what you think is right and don't hold him guiltless. Hold him accountable for his unrighteous acts. Now, 
Solomon, as a wise man, actually continues to show him some mercy. Let's go ahead and read verses 36 through 46 here. Because I think it's interesting because you think that from what David says, that Solomon's going to go out and kill him right away, right? You know, don't gold and gild us, let him go down his gray hair. Don't let him go down his gray hair. Or bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. It sounds like it, you, know, you should go execute him right away. Look what Solomon's judgment is, though. Verses 26. Who would like to read starting there? Joanna. So even in judgment, Solomon gave him a chance by saying, if you remain in Jerusalem, I'll let you live. And all he had to do was, and, and he admitted, this is, this is a good judgment, this is fair, I'll do it. And for three years, he lived by that, and then his slaves ran away, and he was like, oh, i got to go with my slaves. I don't, I don't care about the judgment anymore. He, he left Jerusalem, and when he came back, Solomon found out about it and said, look, we made an agreement, right? And you swore by the Lord, and you broke that. And so you brought this down yourself. So even, even in the judgment, Solomon was showing him mercy. And this guy had plenty of mercy shown to him, that he could have lived out his life under the mercy that both David and Solomon showed him. Um, so very, very interesting to me that he, he had a chance there, but... Uh, he, he refused the mercy that was shown him. Anyway, so that's that's the tale of Shimei. Not really a happy one, but that's what happens. Anyway, so going on, um, let's deal with some other people. Verses 24 to 30. Jonathan, go ahead. Your servant is lame, and he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is of the angel of God. 
Therefore do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? The king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back and taken it to his own house. So Mephibosheth stands before the king. And maybe being lame, I use the word stands, kind of tongue-in-cheek. I don't know if he's actually standing. Um, so he meets the king, and we see that he had not taken care of himself. And maybe partially because his servant had abandoned him, it maybe was a little bit difficult for him to do that. Um, but he came to Jerusalem here, it sounds like, to meet the king. Um, so this may have uh, been a little bit of jump in time from the previous verse where it was outside of Gilgal. Um, and the king asks, why, basically asks, why did you not come sooner? Why did you not come with me when I was exiled? Why have you not met me along the way? And Mephibosheth gives an answer that his servant deceived him. Uh, basically, that his servant said, I'm going to go saddle a donkey and come and get you, and we'll ride to the king. And because Mephibosheth's lame, he sat there and waited, and his servant never showed up with the donkey. And... Then his servant uh, and Mephibosheth seems to have known what his servant had said because then he explains that his servant slandered him. Um, and obviously we know the tale that Ziba said that Mephibosheth was trying to take the throne back for himself and Mephibosheth was saying that couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. And that Mephibosheth goes on to say that I'm going to accept whatever judgment you have for me because you're the king and Part of the reason he's going to do that is because he realizes that David has already shown him great grace and mercy throughout his life and that his house was basically destroyed except for him. And David has shown him an abundance of mercy by just allowing him to not only survive but bringing him into his house and providing for him and allowing him to eat at the king's table. And all the stuff that David has done, he's already grateful for that and knows that that is above and beyond what David had to do for him. And so he's already thankful for that. And you can see in Mephibosheth's attitude that he understands what David has already done for him. So um, even in what he says here, uh, therefore what right have I to still cry out anymore to the king? He's, he's already, you've already done above and beyond what you've had to do. I don't have any right to even ask for anything from you at this point. And so he's, he's explaining himself, but he's saying, I, I don't have any right to petition you for anything else. I understand that. Here, at this point, David uh, basically decides that he's just going to divide Mephibosheth's inheritance between uh, Mephibosheth and Ziba. Um, some of the commentators have said maybe this is because David didn't want to take the time to really figure out what the truth was happening, so the easiest thing was to divide it in half, give half to each one. Um, maybe David was just distracted by everything else that was going on, and so that was just a quick thing to do. Um, either way, a lot of people say that this was probably not the right thing for David to do, uh, given the story and given Mephibosheth's uh, humble appearance before David. It, it seems like Mephibosheth here is telling the truth of what happened. Um, 
But Mephibosheth, then you see him respond, continue to respond in humility here, is that he's just thankful that David returns as king. And that to him, the greatest thing is that David's back. He doesn't care about the inheritance. He says, you can give it all to my servant. I'm just glad that you are returned to your position as king. And I, I'm thankful for that. And that, that's what brings me great joy. And you can see Mephibosheth's story, when you look at it, that you can see that, that Ziba probably was lying and slandering and doing all these wrong things, and Mephibosheth is telling the truth here. And um, you can see his, his gratefulness and his thankfulness to David for all he's done, that he wouldn't have turned around and betrayed David so quickly like that. Um, so, so Mephibosheth's story is probably true here. He probably is very thankful David is back, and he probably has humbly come before the king and say, I don't deserve anything from you, but I am thankful that you're back, and that... Uh, you're back in your position, and that's that's all I care about at this point, is that you have been returned to the proper position of being king over Israel. And that's what brings me joy. And so just the humble attitude we see here is just just remarkable on his part. So, so Mephibosheth is now taken care of, and we move on to another person. And this probably goes back a little bit in time. So Mephibosheth probably goes forward when David is back in Jerusalem. This goes back... Uh, before David gets back to Jerusalem, verses 31 to 39. Abigail, go ahead. And for Gilead, the Gileadite came down from Lebanon and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now, Gilead was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies when he came at Mahanaim, for he was a very aged man. And the king said to Gilead, Come across with me, and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. So Gilead said, So Barzillier refuses to go with the king. And he crosses over the Jordan with the king. He escorts him across the Jordan. And he was 80 years old, which is old in our time, very old in that time too. Um, you remember, he was one of the three guys that we talked about that provided supplies for the king when uh, he was in exile. And he was very rich. Um, so the king invites him to come over to Jerusalem. He wants to show favor to him because he helped him out when he was in exile. But Brazilier declines the offer. And the reason why is that he's not going to live much longer. Uh, he knows that his time is almost up. Uh, he talks about a very poetic language, basically how his senses are dulling. He can't hear, he can't see, uh, he can't taste anything. Uh, it, it reminds me a, a little bit of uh, um, uh, Ecclesiastes, where it talks about you know 
serve God in your youth before all your all your uh, facilities fail, <laughs> uh, where you can't do anything anymore, and it talks about all this kind of stuff. It, it's kind of the same idea. He's he's like I. What, what good would it be for me to go to Jerusalem? I, I, nothing's working on me anymore. I'm going to die soon. Uh, he says, I'll go a little further with you, but I, I want to go back. I want to go back and die where my parents are buried, where my family is buried, where my relations are buried. Um, so he offers this guy Chimham to go with the king. And Chimham may have been a son of his, um, which would make sense because... Um, if the king wants to bless somebody, why not a son of the guy? Uh, that would make a lot of sense. So the king would bless Chimham in place of uh, Brazilier. Uh, and David accepts this, and he's going to reward Chimham in place of Brazilier, and he will give Brazilier whatever he asks now. So if the Brazilier wanted anything now, and I don't know what David has at this point, but um, he may have spoils of battle or whatever, and so David wants to reward him. So all the people cross over the Jordan, and David kisses and blesses Brazilier, and Brazilier returns home. So David wants to reward this guy, but because of his age, he's not able to go with David to Jerusalem. And then, then the last point here, uh, 40 through 43, one more section. Who would like to read? Go ahead, Gabriel. So Judah and Israel have an argument concerning David. No, it's an argument. Um, so David, he's traveling to Gilgal. So now he's coming into Gilgal in the land of Benjamin. Um, Chimham's with them. They mentioned this. And the people of Judah. And half the people of Israel are there too. And the Israelites confront the men of Judah, and they basically accuse the people of Judah of kidnapping David, is what the language is here, um, that they kidnapped him and brought him over the Jordan. And they're asking, why have you done this? Why have you taken David and brought him over the Jordan without our knowledge? And the men of Judah answer, and they say, because David's a close relative. Remember, this is the argument that David told the priest to argue to Judah, that, hey, guys, David's a close relative. So go and make, bring him back and make him king. That's, that's the exact argument he used with them earlier. So they're just repeating the argument. They also add that, hey, we haven't eaten at David's expense or we haven't received a gift from him. We're just doing this because he's our guy. So the Israelites continue to argument. Israelites continue to argue, hey, we have more rights to him because we have ten shares in him. Basically, they're saying we're ten tribes so we got 
we got 10 shares in David. He's, if he's king over Israel, there's 10 of us. There's only one of you. So 10 to 1, we have an advantage here. We got 10 shares. You have one share. We should be doing this. Um, and you're despising us by you taking him and making him king instead of the 10 of us making him king. And by the way, we came up with this idea first. Remember back in the story, they were the ones talking about it originally that we ought to bring David back because he won all these battles, he beat the Philistines, and the Absalom who we anointed is dead, so we need to bring David back. We argued it first. It wasn't you guys who argued it first. We were the ones who, who made, who made this, this stance that we need to bring David back. It was our idea. So we should be bringing David back and making him king, not you, Judah. But you snuck in and took him from us. Uh, but Judah, uh, the, apparently this argument went on for a while. Their words were fiercer. They argued better. And so th- they're going to end up bringing him back. Now, th- this is going to cause problems in a little bit, next chapter, in fact, that Israel's not going to like this. And we're going to look at that. That's why I left it hanging there, because we're going to look at that next week. So what can we take away from this? Okay, so looking at Joab... Uh, There comes a time when we need to say things to others that they may not want to hear and things that may not be easy for us to say, but these things may be for the good of those we say to them. Uh, We sometimes think that telling people that they are wrong or that they're doing wrong is unloving. Sometimes we we say, that's not very supportive, that's not very kind, that's not loving towards them. No, but in fact, sometimes it's the most loving thing we can do. Letting people continue to do what's wrong Letting people do things that's hurting them is not loving. Sometimes we need to go to people and say, hey, that's wrong what you're doing. That's not the right thing to do. And that's what I think Joab did here. We need to be seeking the other person's good in doing this. Now, we can't just go to people and say, hey, you're doing wrong because I want to show that I'm right. Or we can't go to people and tell them that they're doing wrong because we want to put them down, belittle them. It needs to be for their own good. We need to be going to them out of true compassion and love for them because we care about them, because we want them to be doing what's right. We have the wrong attitude. That's not the right thing. The Bible talks about speaking the truth in love, not just speaking the truth to blast someone or speaking the truth to show how smart we are or how righteous we are. Um, it cannot be just so that we can prove ourselves right or bring someone else down, but truly to seek the benefit of the other person. So... So there's a time, and I think in this instance, and again, I, I think Job in a lot of ways is a very unrighteous, bloodthirsty person, but sometimes Job does do, Joab does do the right thing. And I think in this case, Joab was looking at David and saying, Joab, David is hurting himself. I need to say something to David for his own good. I think if Joab wanted to take over the kingdom or whatever, he could have let David just continue to cry for himself, and the people would have left them, and maybe Joab could have jumped in. And he could have benefited himself. I think Joab went to David and said, look, you're hurting yourself. You need to get out there and do the kingly thing and be the king. And I'm saying this because you need to hear it. You need to do what's right here. And I think at this point in time, he was actually thinking of David more than himself. Um, and so I, I think it's a good example here. So that's takeaway number one. Number two, David continues to show mercy to those who have harmed him and who probably did not deserve it. Uh, Shimei continues to receive mercy from David and even to some extent from Solomon as we looked at uh, Solomon's judgment. Uh, David shows what, what it means to be merciful to those who have wronged us and to not take vengeance upon them. And again, you know, David later on in life says he needs to pay for his actions, but for many years, Shimei lived under David's mercy. And even though 
he, David was advised, you know, this guy rose up against the Lord's anointed. He deserves to die. David said, no, no, we're going to show him mercy. Um, and so was it unconditional, perfect mercy? No, but it was still an example of mercy to this guy who probably did not deserve it. So um, it can be an example to us, you know, People will rise up against us. People are going to hate us, especially as we live like Christians. People are going to hate us because of Christ. And yet we still are to show mercy to them and show grace towards them. And we need to remember that. And then number three, David gets caught up in his own suffering at the loss of his son. And, you know, as a father, that's, it's understandable. I'm not saying that, you know, David was necessarily 100% wrong that he was suffering that he was feeling bad for himself, but he forgets that he has a responsibility to lead God's people. And Job reminds him of that responsibility. Sometimes we have responsibilities given us to by God which are beyond our own wants and desires. And I think this is where this fits in with this morning. Um, serving God may and often does require a sacrifice of time, energy, desire, and will. Pastor Dean talked about that. You know, we were, um, we were bought at a price, therefore we need to glorify God. Um, and he, he, referred to, he referred to the verse in 1 Corinthians where when it's talking about sexual immorality, you're, you're brought by God with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. And I was thinking of that verse when I was writing this out. That was the exact same verse I was thinking of. So when you brought that up, I was like, wow. Um, but God, God has bought us, and, and that means sometimes we need to put aside our own desires, our own wants, our own pleasures, our own goals and dreams because we're going to serve God instead. And that's hard sometimes. David was caught up in his own pain and he, he wanted to sorrow, he wanted to cry out, he wanted to weep. And Job says, no, you're the king, you need to do the kingly thing right now. This is what God has you for you to do. And you need to put that aside, I know you're hurting. But right now you need to go out there and be a king to these people. They need to let them know that they did a good job in serving you. They did a good job in fighting for you. They did a good job in winning this battle for you. And you need to lead them like a king would lead them. That's your job. That's what God gave you to do. And you need to stop, stop sorrowing right now. You need to be that king that God made you. And when we serve God, our lives are not our own. We have been bought at a price. And sometimes we just need to remember that, that... It's not about us. It's not about what we want. It's about what God wants for us. So, any thoughts or questions? Lynn? Um, I was thinking of that verse in, in the uh, one thirty one. It says, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things you guys do, that we put God first, so take care of the rest. Yep. Yeah, that, that's, that goes to God's provision, too. I mean, that's, um, we don't have to worry about um, God providing for our needs and stuff, but uh, you know sometimes it's, we look beyond our needs at times. We look at like I'd rather I'd rather do this and that than do what God wants me to do, and you know it's it's easier to seek our own pleasure. And sometimes it's not even our own pleasure. Like David again, David was a father here, and. Being a father is not wrong, and, and being grieved over a death of a son is not wrong. But when it gets in the way of what God wants him to be doing, then he needs to put that aside and do what God wants to do, wants him to do. And so there's a time for there's a time for grief, and there's a time for him to be king. And 
Job was saying, your time for grieving is done at this point. You need to step up and be the king now. And, you know, that's, was it hard for him? I, I can imagine it was hard. He was still very overwhelmed by the death of his son. What Job was saying, enough is enough. You, it's time to do the king. <laughs> and Yeah. And then Joab, besides, besides the, both their shortcomings, you look at the life of David and say, wow, that, that guy is really messed up. Yeah. You know? And then you look at Joab, pure killing machine. That's all that guy did his whole life. <laughs> and there's, no, there's nothing else in the Bible that is, when it speaks of Joab, he's killing somebody left and right, okay? But at the end of his life, at the end of David's life, there was one man mentioned among many in David's life that he was a mighty man of valor. Where else are you going to find in the world where it talks about mighty men of valor? Nowhere. You're, you're not going to find it. You can look, but you're not going to find it. Joab was at the top of the list. Yeah. Now, you could say, well, he was known for killing a lot of people. Well, so was Hitler. But all the people that Joab killed was under God's watch. Yeah. So you have to say, okay, that was, I'm not going to say it was so much as it was ordained by God, but God allowed it because how else was Christ going to come from the line of Judah if it wasn't, if David was not restored back to, right. you know, and, and that's, you know, I think that was the biggest argument there between the two factions, Israel and Judah. Why are you taking him back over there? Judah's like, this is where he belongs. Yeah. And God was like, yeah, that's where he belongs because in my prophecy, it's all about where Christ is going to come from. Yeah. So that, you know, those two men kind of, I just finished reading this whole story. So yeah. in my Bible reading, so it's like, wow, this is, Joab got high marks in God's word, which is, wow. And so David got the highest mark. God uses imperfect people for his glory. Yep. Yep. No, it, it, it's, it's amazing. Again, I, I've, I've said this in class before that you look at, at some of the things we see, and if, if I were God, I would I'd be like, why, why would I even try to use this person? This is obviously ridiculous. Like, even, um, like, which which son like Solomon's the son of a woman that that, that yeah that that David uh, committed adultery with and it seems like if, when you read the story maybe it wasn't completely unwilling on her part and that's the one that's one of the sons that that Joseph came from that's the son that Joseph came from and then the son that Mary came from was one that was. Uh, one of the, the wives that was later that he married in Jerusalem, so it wasn't even the first wife, and I would be like, I would, I would choose the first wife because that, that's the legitimate wife in my eyes, but that's not what God chose. So, you know, you look at stuff like that, and I'd be like, that, why did God do that? Well, you know, because he's God and I'm not. Because, because he's dealing with the, yeah. So there's all kinds of, you know, you, you look at the line of Christ, and you have Rahab in there, and you have... You know, you have Ruth, and you have, I mean, you have all these different people, and, you know, you, you pick Judah, and Judah was bloodthirsty at a time, and, I mean, just all, the, you could look at all this and you say, these people weren't always great people, and yet that's who God used. 
and it's it's God's grace and mercy towards us. So, yep. Any other thoughts? I don't want to keep you all really late. It's Mother's Day, so. Um, Nathan, will you close us in prayer?